This is DW News live from Berlin. Tonight, outrage over a string of media killings in Mexico. Journalists murdered for exposing corrupt politicians and officials. The government under pressure to step up protection for reporters. Also coming up tonight, a frosty run-up to the Beijing Winter Olympics. Countries, including the U.S., staging a diplomatic boycott, protesting the persecution of China's Muslim Uyghurs. And America and Britain threaten new sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine. And that has drawn a blistering response from Vladimir Putin. His first public comments about the crisis this year. And a manhunt for police killers, poachers are being blamed for shooting dead two officers here in Germany. The men were carrying illegal game in their car. I'm Brent Goff. It's good to have you with us on this Tuesday. And on this first day of February, journalists in Mexico are mourning the murder of yet another colleague, the fourth to be killed since the start of this year. Mexico City ranks as one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists. Reporters are being targeted for exposing corruption at the top. The murders have sparked angry protests, and the government is under pressure to make it safer for journalists to do their job. Journalist Roberto Toledo was preparing to record an interview when he was shot. He died from his wounds in hospital. The director of the online paper Toledo worked for, Monitor Michoacán, said the team had been receiving death threats for months. Today, those threats became concrete. Exposing corrupt administrations and corrupt officials and politicians today led to the death of one of our colleagues. Toledo's killing follows those of three other Mexican journalists in January 2022 alone. One of them was reporter Lourdes Maldonado López. She was found shot dead in her car in the border city of Tijuana. In 2019, she had appealed to Mexico's president, Obrador himself, after becoming involved in a dispute with a prominent politician and media owner. Mr. President, I've come to ask you for support, help and justice because I fear for my life. The spate of killings has put reporters across Mexico on edge and sparked protests asking the government to step up protection for media workers. And for more on this now, I want to bring in Javier Gatha. He is a journalist in Mexico and a consultant on journalist protection at the World Association of Newspapers. Javier, it's good to have you on the program. I mean, the numbers here are really bad. The fourth killing of a journalist in Mexico this year, Reporters Without Borders says 50 journalists have been killed over the past five years in Mexico. How do you explain what's going on? Hi, Brent. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really tough to explain uh, because we are looking at two main main causes um, uh, or main reasons why this is happening. One is uh, the the spree of, of uh, attacks against journalists, not just uh, uh, murders. Murder is, of course, the most extreme 
form of attack, but uh, threats of, of every kind, uh, spying, harassment, surveillance, etc. Um, the spree of attacks against journalists that we have been experiencing for the last 15 years uh, under different governments. So this is not a problem of the current uh, federal government in, in Mexico. This is a problem that we have been accumulating for years, but it has accelerated under this government because we are seeing that contrary to what was promised by, by current president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who uh, got to office with, with a, a campaign platform of eliminating corruption and eliminating violence, uh, there is a, a, a total lack of commitment. Uh, I would even say a lack of interest on the part of the government for tackling this issue. And so this fuels impunity. Uh, yeah. This makes uh, crimes against journalists to go unpunished, and everybody who thinks about attacking a journalist uh, can can do so with the knowledge that uh, they can get away with it. And Reporters Without Borders labels Mexico the most dangerous place for journalists in the world. And based on what you're saying, it sounds like journalists are being targeted, you know, not only from the drug cartels, but also possibly from, you know, all the way up to the highest levels of government. Uh, yeah, journalists are being targeted from, from multiple sources. Uh, usually, it is drug cartels who carry out the most extreme form of attack, which is the assassination. But we have also been seeing, particularly in the last years, uh, this collusion between uh, criminal organizations, drug cartels or other criminal organizations, and local government officials uh, at the municipal or the state level, um, police forces or other security forces, sort of um, conflate uh, in order to uh, mask the real purpose of um, killing a journalist. Uh, let's say, for example, a local authority uh, has a problem with a journalist, so uh, an assassination can be ordered, but it can be outsourced, so to speak, uh, to a criminal group. Uh, and so it will look like a hit by a criminal organization. So there's mm. all these different combinations together. Uh, and sometimes the government would minimize um, the the um, the crimes by saying, well, the journalist wasn't really a journalist because he was working on something else. Uh, the last case of Roberto Torrode, we saw a response from the federal government saying that, that he was working uh, on something else, mm. not as a journalist. Uh, and so it, it gets a, a, a very murky. And Javier, we want to you know, remind our viewers, you work as a security consultant for other journalists, and we expect to hear that when we're talking about war zones, but we're talking about Mexico. I mean, what safety advice do you give journalists who are working in Mexico? Yeah, well, I work on, on these issues because I experienced violence uh, myself as the editor of, an, of a newspaper that came under fire from drug, drug uh, cartels in several occasions. So some of the lessons that I learned is that um, each regional dynamic is very different. What's happening in Michoacán, where we had the latest killing uh, of a journalist, is very different from Tijuana, for example, where uh, the, the case of Lourdes Maldonado, for instance. So we have to get to the bottom of the local circumstances and what are the dynamics, the criminal dynamics, the political dynamics that fuel violence against journalists. But the advice that I give journalists is... You need to have um, a safety protocol, a safety plan based on those local dynamics. You really have to know your turf uh, mm -hmm. and design the appropriate safety measures. And, and, and unfortunately, this is true 
you cannot, you have to be very uh, certain, very aware that you cannot rely on the government for help because they are not helping. On the contrary, sometimes they're making the problems worse. Yeah, that is a, a tragic commentary on the security situation, also on the state of government by the people in Mexico. Javier Garza, journalist there in Mexico, we appreciate your time and your insights and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Well, with the Winter Olympics due to open later in the week, the United States and other countries are staging a diplomatic boycott in protest of China's human rights record. Growing numbers of COVID-19 cases are also worrying athletes who are arriving for the Games. Beijing is insisting the Games will be safe. Arrival at the airport in Beijing. Chinese workers in protective gear welcome the incoming Olympic teams and their baggage. Then it's a PCR test before a trip to the venues in the Olympic Village where similar tests are to follow on a daily basis. Caution is the watchword. China's cross-country skiers are being shielded from foreign rivals, their Norwegian coach tells us. With this team we have been staying in China the full time for the past two years. So um, they have been extremely careful. We haven't actually competed uh, internationally for two years. Of the foreign athletes who have already arrived, 125 have tested positive for COVID-19 and have isolated. It's not clear whether they'll all get the negative test result they need in time to compete. The opening ceremony fireworks have been rehearsed, but critics say that China is using the pizzazz of the games to distract from human rights abuses. So the CCP's purpose is exactly to turn the sports arena into a space for political legitimacy and a tool to whitewash all those atrocities. But China itself boasts of its strength and promises a safe Winter Olympics in Beijing. Well, the plight of China's Uyghur community and their harsh repression, it is looming large over these Winter Olympics. With opposition suppressed within China, many are making their voices heard outside of the country. Our Washington bureau chief, Enos Pohl, met a Uyghur restaurant owner in Los Angeles whose father disappeared three years ago. These mountains remind Bukhra Akin very much of home. He left China six years ago to start a new life in the U.S. Everything seemed to go well until his father, who remained in China, was abruptly snatched from his home during the night of October 25th in 2018. His father owned one of the biggest Uyghur publishing firms and Arkin believes that his fight to protect the Uyghur language and culture was the reason why the Chinese government put him in prison. Arkin says his father was like a best friend, supporting him financially in the US. My biggest fear, I really scared like he couldn't uh, cuddle his grandchildren. Uh, to just cuddle with me again. That's my biggest fear, to see him again. I wish US government and Euro, they can do more to pressure on China about the, gen the genocide. 
After his father was detained, Bukra Arkin opened a restaurant in the larger LA area. He named it Dolans after the bigger region in eastern Xinjiang where he grew up. One of the most popular dishes is Lachman, a dish of hand-pulled noodles. Regal cuisine stems from the far western area of China at the border of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, where most of the region's 12 million Uyghurs live. Surprisingly, not many people know about Uyghurs, even there's so many news on the media. So, like, I have to like, attract them to create like curiosity then uh, through this t-shirt I, I think it helps a lot like people they ask about Uyghurs they google the Uyghurs some of his customers already know a lot about the topic others are just about to find out as an American I feel uh, a responsibility as a conscientious consumer to understand that uh, the Uyghurs are inextricably connected to American consumership and capitalism. That there are so many companies that have direct or indirect relationships to Uyghur labor through the forced detention and forced labor camps that the Chinese are um, inflicting on them and have been for so long. So I'm definitely interested in, in uh, knowing more about them and I plan to Google uh, Uyghur later today. <laughs> All right, here's a roundup now of some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Heavy gunfire has erupted in the capital of Guinea-Bissau, raising fears of another attempted coup in the West African nation. State TV saying invaders have seized officials and damaged the government palace. Amnesty International saying that Israel's policies towards the Palestinians amount to the international definition of apartheid. Israel has rejected the allegation, saying its own Arab citizens enjoy equal rights. The government has called Amnesty's claim anti-Semitic. A court in Norway has rejected the parole application of mass murderer Anders Breivik, who killed 77 people in an attack back in 2011. The far-right extremist is serving Norway's maximum sentence of 21 years under terrorism charges. The international community is stepping up diplomatic efforts to defuse the crisis over Ukraine. The U.S. and Britain are threatening to impose tough new sanctions if Russia invades the country. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has reinforced Washington's support for Kyiv. Russian President Vladimir Putin, he has hit back today in his first remarks on the crisis in more than a month. He's accusing the West of ignoring Moscow's concerns about security, its own security in the region. With the flags of his allies on proud display, Ukraine's president announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces to 100,000 professional soldiers. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson flew to Kiev to meet with Zelensky. In a press conference afterwards, Johnson appealed for a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And 
uh, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Speaking from Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine's NATO allies of exploiting the crisis for their own benefit. Their most important goal is to contain Russia, that's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Russia continues to build up its forces in the region, even as diplomats from both sides are still trying to solve the crisis. Russian troops are set to hold military drills in Belarus this month, based from camps like this one, just a few miles from the Polish border. All right, we want to bring in our correspondent, Nick Connolly. He joins me now from Kyiv. He knows the ins and outs of Ukraine. It's good to see you again, Nick. I know we've got more threats of sanctions being directed at Russia. Um, has this visit from the British Prime Minister, has it helped de-escalate the situation at all? Well, it's definitely all about the optics. It's about a show of diplomatic solidarity with Ukraine. You get the sense right now that Volodymyr Zelensky basically has little in the way of breaks between all the Western European and Central European leaders here coming to visit him in Kiev. This is definitely not business as usual. We had the Polish uh, Prime Minister today, tomorrow the Dutch Prime Minister in town. Um, there was little in the way of escalation in terms of concrete steps. There were threats of sanctions, as you mentioned. But given that they're already being spoken about now, you would imagine that any exposed Russian companies would have long done their best to remove any assets from the UK or out of UK jurisdictions. But uh, the Ukrainians are very happy to see this. This is a sign also to the Ukrainian population that this issue is not peripheral to the agenda uh, across Europe, that Europe is paying attention to what's being done here on Ukraine's borders. And the UK has already provided the Ukrainian army with anti-tank missiles. So that is something that has gone down very well and has been seen as a significant contribution to Ukraine's ability to defend itself. And as such, something that uh, makes it more unlikely that Russia will actually intervene. Russian President Vladimir Putin, he broke his silence today. We hadn't heard from him since mid-December of last year, and he's accusing the United States of using Ukraine to contain Russia. Now, is that something that is even on the radar in Ukraine? I mean, do they see that as being possible at all, or do they feel like they're being used as a geopolitical pawn by the Kremlin? I mean, I think for Ukrainians, the fact that they are going to be, as long as they are not part of NATO, not part of the EU, or not closely controlled by Russia, there are always going to be tensions around Ukraine. Ukraine is too big in terms of population, in terms of its size geographically, and in terms of its strategic location in the heart of Europe to be a kind of strategic afterthought in the way that a country like Finland can be. That is a given. I think most Ukrainians are not surprised by that. I think the big thing for most Ukrainians is whether Ukraine is at the table when these discussions are taking place. Now, Vladimir Putin has consistently ignored the Ukrainians in recent months. Russian leaders calling Ukraine a Western vassal and talking only to the U.S. Uh, administration. The U.S., for its part, has made a, a big effort to try and include Ukrainians in this format. We even hear Antony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, saying nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine at the table. So uh, for now, I think Ukrainians feeling relatively calm that they are being kept in the loop. And we know Ukrainian President Zelensky, he has told both the U.S. and Russia, you know, tone down all of the vitriol here about 
fighting. And yet, at the same time, he's announced an increase in the number of Ukrainian troops. How's this being received in the country? Uh, with a lot of heads being scratched at the same time. We had a similar occasion just last week where he came out with a video message telling Ukrainians to not panic by, to tell, telling them they didn't need to buy matches and other essentials. And then the next day he told a US newspaper that Kharkiv, one of Ukraine's biggest cities on the Russian border, could be occupied relatively uh, soon. So lots of mixed messaging there. I think there is a desire on the part of the Ukrainian leadership to not to be seen to be, you know, uh, saber-rattling, not to give the Russians anything that they can use against Ukraine and say, here, look, Ukraine is spoiling for a fight. But equally, they're trying to reassure the population that they are doing enough to protect Ukraine. Mm. So I think it's pretty difficult to, and probably not much point to look for any deeper logic there, but a time of great stress for the people here in charge in Kiev. Yeah, I mean, we can only imagine what people there are going through every day. EW's Nick Connolly reporting tonight from Kiev. As always, Nick, thank you. Well, here in Germany, two suspects are being held for the killing of two police officers who were shot dead during a traffic stop. Prosecutors believe the hunters shot dead the officers to avoid being caught for poaching a legal game. The case has caused widespread outrage. The two suspects were arrested on Monday evening. Police searching their homes found a large number of guns. Among them, they believe the weapons that took the lives of two young police officers. The main suspect, a 38-year-old man known as a trader in wild game, has so far remained silent. The other man, a 32-year-old, has admitted poaching. But why such deadly violence occurred remains unclear. Prosecutors say the two officers were both shot in the head. The female officer still had her pistol in its holster. She may have had a flashlight in her hand and the papers. She cannot have seen it coming. The officers were on patrol on a country road when the fatal incident happened. They found a number of dead animals in a vehicle and were speaking with the occupants when they were shot. They called for help, but by the time their colleagues arrived, it was too late. Even seasoned investigators say they've been shocked by the killings. It's not our idea of Germany that someone just starts shooting on the street with hunting weapons and opens fire just because he might be caught poaching. That's why this case is so disturbing. Prosecutors say there does not appear to be any political motive behind this crime. The Premier of the state of Rhineland-Palatinate, where the shooting took place, expressed her dismay at the deaths. Every day, police officers are on the streets for us, everywhere, to protect society and to be there for the community. Those who attack these officers are attacking the whole of society. The younger police officer was just 24 years old and still completing her training when she died. That fact can only heighten the sense of disbelief across Germany at this tragic loss of life. And here are some of the other stories now that are making headlines. Denmark has become the first European Union country to lift all of its pandemic restrictions. Now that includes face masks, vaccination passes, and limited opening hours for bars and restaurants and clubs. The move comes despite record numbers of COVID-19 infections. The government says it's now relying on Denmark's high vaccination rate to cope with the Omicron variant. 
The World Health Organization, meanwhile, has warned countries not to lift all of their COVID-19 restrictions at once. The director of the WHO saying that Omicron should not be underestimated and cautioning that the virus will continue to evolve. Ecuador has been hit by a natural disaster. Landslides triggered by flooding have killed at least 22 people. Buildings and cars, take a look at those pictures right there, have been swept away in the capital, Quito. Heavy rains have pounded Ecuador for months. Scientists are blaming global warming for this. It is a similar picture in Brazil, where more than 20 people have died. Landslides and flooding in the state of Sao Paulo have left hundreds of families homeless. The governor has ordered emergency aid. Torrential rains and heavy flooding have battered Brazil now for the last month. It's a race against time, the search for remaining survivors before it's too late. They think that there are people over there. May God help them if they are alive. Yesterday someone was calling for help. Today he is not calling anymore. They are trying to get the body out of there, dead or alive. Some flood victims are still being pulled out of the mud. But the hope to find any more is quickly fading. A desperate wait for those whose loved ones are missing. I'm looking for my nephew, his wife and a two-year-old child. They said the bodies are still there under the mud, but until now they couldn't recover them. Deadly landslides are a frequent occurrence in Brazil during the rainy season. Here in Franco da Rocha they are especially dangerous for hillside houses that are often the homes of the poor. Firefighters say they'll continue operations until all the missing persons on their list are accounted for, both the living and the dead. All right, some sports news now. NFL superstar and seven-time Super Bowl winner Tom Brady has confirmed, finally, that he is retiring at the ripe age of 44. Brady recently hinted that he was considering his future, but has now confirmed the end of an astonishing 22-year career. He retires as the most successful quarterback in NFL history. He won six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots and a final one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. When you got it, you got it. If you're afraid of flying, you might not want to watch this closely. This video shows a dramatic landing at London's Heathrow Airport. Of course you want to watch. Take a look. A British Airways plane failed to land on its first attempt as winds from powerful storm Corey, look at this, battered the runway. The, oh, ah, the aircraft's wheels touched the ground, but the plane swayed from side to side due to the wind, forcing the pilot to head back into the air. That is scary stuff, folks. The plane managed to successfully land on a second attempt. Pays to have a good pilot. We'll see you again at the top of the hour.
three have what it takes to be superstars. Lukas Mecha of VFL Wolfsburg. Jude Bellingham of Borussia Dortmund. And Polino of Bayer Leverkusen. We take a closer look at these up-and-coming talents in our series, Rising Stars. Kickoff. Next on DW. Secrets lie behind these walls. Discover new adventures in 360 degrees and explore fascinating World Heritage sites. DW World Heritage 360. Get the app now. One of mankind's oldest ambitions could be within reach. What if it really is possible? to reverse aging. Researchers and scientists all over the world are in a race against time. The DNA molecule, though, has 28 million different hourglasses. They are peers and rivals with one daring goal to outsmart nature. One of the most insightful discoveries in the history of mankind. More Life starts February 16th on DW.